uh, I don't think we have a slide for it, but if there's any kids with us, you're welcome to go to uh, Sunday school. Oh, there we go. You're welcome to go, thanks, Dennis, to Sunday school at this time. So feel free to go, or you're welcome to hang out with us. We're glad to have you. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. Um, a lot of our other staff, we are blessing them into good vacation at the moment, so we're hoping that they will get good rest. But it's good to be with you this morning, and I uh, would love to ask you to just pray with me as we begin our time together. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and hear what you would have for us. And God, we pray once again that we wouldn't just learn something new, but that we would actually be changed from encountering you in your word this morning. And God, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our heart would be pleasing to you. And we ask also that anything that is said that is of you and your truth, would you help that to sink deep within us? And anything that is not of you, would you allow that to fall away? God, would you remind us this morning of your presence truly here with us? For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So for years now, I have really liked Psalm 46, the psalm we read for the call of worship this morning. But after studying it more closely in preparation for this morning, I realized I really had no clue what it was about. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, a favorite passage of scripture, and you go, I didn't see this before. So I had the privilege um, of sitting down with my 96-year-old grandpa recently. My grandpa has co-authored a number of books on the Psalms, and I got the chance to talk to him a couple of weeks ago about this passage. He told me that the Psalms can heal our emotions like no other book. He said that all the great saints discovered that they are the most important book to meditate on. Augustine, the great church father, he preached on the Psalms every Sunday for the last 20 years of his life. Okay, how about that for a sermon series? (laughs) Can you imagine what kind of catchy graphic and logo we'd need for a 20-year sermon series? John Calvin preached extensively on the Psalms, and he referred to the Psalms as the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Grandpa then reminded me that the Psalms were the foundation for Jesus' learning. They were critical in his formation. Way more than we realize, Jesus is actually quoting or referencing the Psalms in his teaching and in his life. If the Psalms are Jesus' textbook, how can we not pay attention? Finally, Grandpa said, nothing is more profound from A to Z than entering into the Psalter. Now, I had to look it up. Psalter is just a fancy word for the book of Psalms. I have to look up a lot of the words my grandpa uses. (laughs) And so as I dug into this passage, I realized that this psalm, written thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, and intended to be sung as part of temple worship, this psalm actually speaks to the state of our world in 2019 and to the state of our hearts this morning. Let's hear these words again. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. 
The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So this morning, the plan for this morning, we're going to reflect on the passage, and then we're going to reflect a little bit on what this means for our hearts and what it means for the state of our world. So to help us in our reflecting on the passage, we're going to consider these four themes from the psalm. The judgment of God, the work of God, the presence of God, and the exaltation of God. So who knew that this psalm that has inspired more cross-stitch and wall hangings than perhaps any other was actually talking about the judgment of God? Many of the images in this psalm are consistent with images throughout Scripture that are a picture of judgment and the consequences of living apart from God. For example, in our psalm this morning, here's some of the images. The earth give way. The mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam. The mountains quake. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. The desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. All of these are actually images of judgment. And compare these images with just a brief sampling of other passages. Psalm 18, the earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Isaiah 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Isaiah 24, the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is exceeding, is shaken exceedingly. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. Luke 21, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And there's dozens more I could have chosen. All throughout Scripture, right through to Revelation, These images echo again and again to describe the judgment and the consequences of sin on the earth. We even see in these images the reversal of creation. So instead of the waters and land being separated, as told in the Genesis story, the land, the mountains, are falling into the heart of the sea. Now, I will admit, I am way more comfortable talking about the love of God than the judgment of God. I am way happier telling you about the amazing stories of how God has rescued, healed, and redeemed his people. Like the time he rescued the Israelites by opening up the seas for them to pass through. Or the time Jesus healed a man who was being tortured by hundreds of demons. Or how Jesus healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Or when Jesus crossed ethnic, social, religious, and gender boundaries to speak with a Samaritan woman and offer her living water. But actually, none of these stories are good news apart from judgment. Yes, they all show the incredible love of God, but they also show the judgment of God. 
As the Israelites are rescued, those who oppose and threaten them are swallowed by the sea. As the man is freed from the demons, the demons are sent into pigs and again swallowed by the sea. As the woman is healed from 12 years of bleeding, there is judgment on disease and on her being isolated from community. As Jesus crosses barriers to speak to the Samaritan woman at the well, he judges the barriers that people use to divide themselves and one another. There is no good news without judgment, without God saying, this is not as it's supposed to be. Recently, in a difficult season, God was graciously speaking in many ways to me of his presence with me. And sometimes I picture Jesus with me or crying with me. But after a long and difficult time, I found myself saying, I'm tired of knowing the sad Jesus who's with me in my pain. Yes, I am glad for it, but I actually want the angry God. The God who says, this is not as it should be. The God who fights for me. The God who says, this is not what I intended for my children, and I will make it right. That is the God of judgment. The God who says, this is not as it should be, and makes things right. The God of judgment and the God of good news. So what is the earth being judged for? Well, as we look at these other themes, we're going to get a better idea of what the problem is and why there's judgment in this psalm. But for now, let's say that God's judgment comes simply when things are not as they should be when people are not living in ways that God intended, when nations are structured in ways that pursue a path apart from him. So let's consider the work of God that's described in this psalm, and then this will give us a picture of how God did intend for things to be, and that will help us understand when things are not as they intended. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. So along with the judgment, the work of God is to restore things to the way that God intended, the way he set them up in the first place. In God's world, there is to be peace. Wars are stopped, and all the instruments of war, the weapons of war, are destroyed, no longer needed, no longer to be used. Aside from bringing conflict to an end, God's work here is as a sustainer. In contrast to the catastrophic events in the earth, the story is much different for the city of God. The city of God is filled with God's presence, and God is sustaining and defending the city. God protects the city from adversaries and adversaries and does the work of sustaining life. Even the water behaves differently in the city of God. So in the previous verses, the sea was swallowing the mountains and the waters roared and foamed so significantly that they made the mountains shake. But here, the water, according to God's purposes, is the source of sustenance providing life to the city. Beyond judgment and work, what is truly at the heart or center of the psalm is the presence of God. The presence of God permeates every aspect of this psalm. Presence is simply that God is, that God exists, he is real, he wants to be known, and is with us. The psalm begins before it says anything about judgment, anything about fear, anything about crazy, catastrophic, and drastic things happening. Before everything else, it begins, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Our psalm starts from this place. It says, make your foundation. Be sure of this. Whatever else is said in the song, whatever else is to come, 
God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Refuge, we're probably pretty familiar with, but a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. And strength, we're familiar with the quality or state of being physically strong, but I was particularly struck by the second meaning of strong, the capacity of an object or substance to withstand great force or pressure. God is our refuge and strength. And it's not God gives us strength, but God is our strength. God himself is the capacity, the reason, the only way we withstand great force or pressure. Have you ever been told by well-meaning people, God won't give you more than you can handle? You may see this is from First Meme 777. <laughs> Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's just not in the Bible. And not only is it not found in the Bible, but the witness of Scripture actually says just the opposite. The point is that we can't handle it and that we need him. It's not about us mustering up the strength to cope, and it's not even that God, like, airdrops in something to help get us through. Rather, God, in his ongoing, continual presence with us, is our strength. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. The words here point to an abundance of help, exceedingly helpful. And help, not just like a little assistance, help like military rescue kind of help. Like rescuing 13 boys and their coach from a water-filled cave four kilometers in the ground kind of help. That is the God who is present to us in this psalm and today. In contrast with the desolations on the earth that we see in verses 2 to 3, verse 4 paints a really different picture. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. This break of day is actually a callback to the rescue of the Israelites in the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. Another picture of rescue, of mighty help. It says, God is within her. She will not fall. This is the same word that is used for the mountains falling or shaking, slipping or tottering into the heart of the sea. So in contrast, the psalmist says, in the city of God, where God is present, where the Most High dwells, actually lives, where the Most High makes home, hangs out, in this place, unlike the mountains, This place will not fall, will not slip or be shaken. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In this refrain that's repeated again in verse 11, we get this stunning contrast of the true nature of God. God is both Lord Almighty, set apart, holy, great, powerful, and also Yahweh which is the personal name of the God of the Israelites, the God that draws near and is closer than your breath, Yahweh. Both are true of the nature of God, and Yahweh, Lord Almighty, and Elohim, God of Jacob, are present in this psalm. The words, the Lord Almighty is with us, could also be read, the Lord Almighty is for us, for our good. The words, God won't give you more than you may handle, can handle, may not be in scripture, 
but I will never leave you or forsake you, are there twice. Hebrews 13.5, and that's quoting Deuteronomy 31.6. And I imagine if we truly knew the gift that is the presence of God, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, if we really knew that he is with us, for us, our strength and ever-present help, it would probably change everything. The exaltation of God. The psalm closes with the exaltation of God. Exalted simply means being lifted up or most highly regarded. When you think the utmost of something, it's more wonderful than anything else. That's exalted. I will be exalted among the nations. The nations will see me in this way. I will be exalted in the earth. The same earth that gave way in verse 2. In that earth, God will be exalted, raised up, made known, most highly regarded, seen for who he truly is, revered, worshipped, and feared. Among the nations that are in uproar, the kingdoms that fell, the desolations, among those people, God will be exalted, raised up, made known, most highly regarded, seen for who he truly is, revered, worshipped, and feared. Spoiler alert. That's how this ends. We don't need to be afraid because we know how it ends. Do we really know this? Do we really know that God will be exalted among the nations? God will be exalted in the earth? I think a lot of the time I play like I'm on the losing team. But God wins. That's the end. He is exalted. That's the final word. And it's not maybe that will happen or depending on how good a job my people do with this or if people are just nice and do what I tell them. This is the plan. It's what's happening. It will happen. You can get on board or not, but this is how it ends. I said at the beginning of of this that this psalm written thousands of years ago has something to say to us in our hearts this morning. One of the striking things about this psalm, even in contrast to some other psalms, is that we get very little airtime in this psalm. It really is all about God. God is bursting out of the lines, filling and expanding our understanding of who he is. God is our refuge and strength. God will help her. Come and see what the Lord has done. I will be exalted. So do you know where we find ourselves in this psalm? It's in seven words. And they are still all about God. After all this discussion of the mighty activity of God, all that he is doing, he finally addresses us, and we get to find out what there is for us. Be still and know that I am God. That's it. God is refuge, strength, help, and our job is to be still. But it's not actually even our job description. It's not even an invitation. It's actually a command and a disturbing one at that. In his commentary, Derek Kinder says, Be still and know that I am God is not in the first place comfort for the harassed, but a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. Quiet. Be still. It's not a wall hanging, it's a rebuke. Have you ever been around a child who just kind of loses control of themselves and they're wild, maybe they're tired or they're strung out on sugar? And you see their parents just wrap their arms around them and hold them still. And slowly, 
their heart rate settles, the breathing calms, and eventually they're at peace. I used to think that these words to be still were kind of random after all this talk about war and weapons. I imagine this calm, peaceful setting where he whispers, be still. But it's not random, and that's not what's happening. The command to be still is only possible because all of our defenses are gone. All the weapons or tools we've been using to do it on our own, to make it, to accomplish, to fight, to defend ourselves, they are broken, shattered, and burned. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. All the things that we turn to for strength or to dull or numb or avoid or fight with, gone. And finally, with all these gone, he can say, be still. For it's only when those tools and weapons and means of our striving are shattered can we have hope of being still and knowing God is God, I am not. It's our original problem. We are constantly trying to be like God. It's the same way the serpent tempted Eve. Whether we realize it or not, we are all trying to be like God, to be in control, to have things our way. And it's only when we get to the end of our defenses, no, that still sounds like we can still do it. It's only when our defenses have been shattered that we can be still. It's kind of a call to surrender. You have nothing left. All your tools to fight are gone. Hold still and know that I am God. I remember a couple of particular times like when this happened for me. The first was when I left my home, my family, my friends, my beloved mountains and ocean in Vancouver to move to Toronto. I found myself at 17 living in downtown Toronto and hardly knowing a soul. The first night in Res, we kept hearing gunshots. And they finally told us, thankfully, that they were filming a Wesley Snipes movie down the road. <laughs> but still, I used to carry a giant Maglite flashlight, you know, the one that weighs like 10 pounds because of the batteries. Yeah, my mom gave it to me when I moved. I used to carry that to my night classes on campus. I remember at that time feeling very alone. And I remember saying, all right, God, it's you and me because I've got nothing left. I was so far from everyone and everything I knew. Another time came not too much later in my second year at U of T. It was an incredibly difficult year. And by the end of the year, I had lost my closest friend from first year. I was struggling with school when I never had before. Okay, and when I say struggling, I mean I got 19% on an organic chemistry midterm. Yeah, and what's worse, I actually studied for it. Okay, and what's worse than that, my exam was so bad that when I got it back, I thought, huh, 19. That's actually 19% more than I thought I got. <laughs> Around the same time, I tried out for a varsity sports team, and I didn't make it. I was no longer doing theater, which I loved. I applied for a leadership position in my dorm, and unlike every other leadership position I had ever previously gone for, I didn't get it. And to finish the year off, the guy I'd had a crush on for a year and a half started dating my friend. I felt like the rug had been pulled out from beneath me, and I was fell flat on my face. The things I had looked to, or had wanted to look to for identity and affirmation, were stripped away. I felt beat up exposed, alone, angry, and sad. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the shields with fire. Be still. Here are two definitions of still that I came across in this context. To sink, relax, hang limp, relent, leave alone. Or how about this one? Be feeble, i.e. be in a state of lacking power or force with a focus that the muscles have lost their muscle tone to flex and so respond to a situation. That kind of still. The command or rebuke, be still, actually echoes another command in Mark 4, 35 to 41. And it's there where we're going to turn our attention for a moment. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Okay, this is a terrifying story. Let's try to imagine just for a moment a fraction of the terror they were facing. It's nighttime. A huge storm has just picked up. They're in the middle of the lake. And as we've talked about before, Jewish people are not water people. They're not comfortable in the water. The water is a place of chaos and destruction. See the song for today that they would have known. You don't want to spend any more time than necessary on the sea, especially not far from the shore in the middle of the night in a storm. There's a lot of reason to fear. Now think with me for a moment about fear. What's the opposite of fear? Not being afraid? I've heard fear described as a lack of control over something. And the things that we can't control are the things that we fear. So perhaps the opposite of fear is control. Or peace, maybe? But in this passage, Jesus contrasts fear with faith. Sometimes the stories are too familiar and we gloss over stuff like that. But fear and faith are strange opposites. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? The implication being if you had faith, you wouldn't have fear. You wouldn't be afraid. Faith in its simplest is trust in someone or something. And for faith, for trust, you have to know something about that person or thing. Every Monday to Thursday morning, Jordan rides his bike to the train station and has faith that a train will come to pick him up. He trusts a train will take him to Toronto. Why? Because he knows something about this train. It has done so before. There's a schedule and a system to make sure that it comes. Now, if you ask him, he may not have faith that it will get him there on time, but that's another matter. In this passage, the disciples show that they don't really know who's in the boat with them. And worse still, they certainly don't trust him. At the end, they're still asking, who is this? And in the midst of the crisis, they go so far as to question, do you even care? They don't know who is in the boat with him, and they don't trust him. And so he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still not trust me and know who I am? 
So with that, let's look back at our passage. Fear is the only emotion that's named in Psalm 46, and it's put out there right away. In verse 2, therefore we will not fear, even though all these crazy, scary things happen. Fear Fear is actually our basic human emotion, and all other emotions are distorted by fear. Fear alienates us, separates us, isolates us. Fear can trigger our addictions as a way to try to cope with fear's heavy burden. Therefore, we will not fear. Even all this crazy stuff will happen, even though the whole world will be in turmoil, even though all our defenses will be shattered. No fear. Quiet. Be still. Know that I am God. Remember who I am. Trust me. In other words, have faith. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Be still and know that I am God. Some of you know this about me, but I really like listening to podcasts. And Justin has got me going on this incredibly thought-provoking one. It's called This Cultural Moment. And recently, I was listening to a talk on the podcast by one of the hosts, who's an author, a cultural commentator, and a pastor, Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers is a pastor of a church in Melbourne, Australia, and he was giving a talk in Portland, Oregon, to a group of church leaders from similarly progressive cities around the world, cities where church planting and church growth seem insurmountable against the wave of secularism sweeping our world, and particularly our urban centers. And he asked this provocative, these provocative questions. What if secularism and post-Christianity is far weaker than we imagine? What if it's in crisis? What if the tumult that we've seen across the world, from Brexit to Trump to cultural conflict, what if that's a sign of the failure of post-Christianity and secularism? He goes on to talk about this term we use, progressive. There's this notion, even in the term itself, that we, society as a whole, are progressing, getting better, that we are moving towards some kind of utopia. And those that are not with us are not progressive. They're behind. No doubt, we have more human rights in place today than ever before in history. But that's it. You see what's... The tricky part about this progressive dream is that it's not that dissimilar to the kingdom in many ways, but for one important exception. Our drive for equality for people, for reconciliation across races, for valuing human life and dignity, for caring for refugees, for taking better care of the earth, providing programs and assistance to those most vulnerable, these are all actually kingdom-like things, except for this. The progressive dream wants to move towards this vision of utopia without a king. We are trying to do this on our own, our own strength, on the goodness of humanity. And all that is ultimately apart from God. Scripture tells us clearly what happens when we build things apart from God. Sayers is wondering if some of the turmoil we see in the world is evidence that this foundation, our progressive movement foundation, is on shaky ground. And if it's actually vulnerable to collapse, it might even fall into the heart of the sea. I have to admit, this idea rocked me. And of course it rocked me as I too have been asking over these past couple years, what is happening in the world? How is this real? 
Just yesterday, my cousin was saying she saw a headline and thought, that must be from The Onion. And if you're not familiar, that's a satirical newspaper. And then she realized, nope, that's not made up. That's not The Onion. That is real. And she said, we are living in The Onion, meaning we are living in the headlines that never seemed real or impossible. What if all of these things are signs of a world, a system in need of a savior, a refuge, rescue, and strength? And this question also rocked me because it reminded me of all the ways I live apart from God. They might be subtle. I'm too busy. I've got this. I don't really like how you're doing things anyway. But how has this creeped into my own heart? Or worse, how has it sunk into the roots? the foundation of how I live and serve. We as a society are trying to pursue good, but we are doing it apart from God. And what if, without necessarily realizing it or meaning to, in my pursuit of good, God gets pushed to the side or forgotten, overlooked, or ignored? As I talked this psalm over with my grandpa, he said, while fear is our basic emotion, praise, is our basic relationship with God. There are two primary emotions, he said, fear and praise. And he asked this question, are we moving in the direction of praise or are we moving in the direction of fear? Is our basic attitude as one of a creature with a creator who is trusted and loved? Still, know that I am God. We said the contrast to fear with faith and praise is simply the expression of that faith. Praise is what flows from trusting, from knowing, and understanding who God is. Praise is our basic relationship. Are we moving in the direction of fear or praise? The Psalms invite us to bring all of our emotions, all of our woundedness, all of our fear, all the things that we don't think are fear, but if we peel back the layers enough, we realize they are. The Psalms invite us to bring all of these into the presence of God. All our emotions before the word of God in the Psalms and to see how in his presence he tends to our wounds. He heals, he restores, he redeems. And in doing this, he frees us to trust, to believe, to know that he is God. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would move among us in mighty ways to move us away from fear and towards praise. Would you break the defenses that need to be broken in order to call us to stillness, to quiet, to knowing that you are God? God, would you teach us to know that you are God in ways that we maybe even never have known before? with our mind, with our hearts, with our body, with all of who you all of who we are. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Once a month 